Hello, and welcome to the fourth anniversary edition of Oh God, What Now, formerly known as Romaniacs. For the first time since March 2020, at least some of us are back in an actual physical studio, so we can see each other's beautiful faces. We will try not to get distracted. (laughs) And as a special birthday treat, thank you Dominic Cummings, we're putting the show out early for everyone. Uh, Don't get used to it, it's not happening every week, unless you're a Patreon backer. So, who do we have this week? Joining us in person, looking like she's on the Today programme, is... (laughs) As she should be, is Roz Taylor, editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Roz. Move over, Amal Rajan. Yeah, you just pit me to the post there. No, hello, <laughs> hello, Dorian. Roz, a massive report by former EHRC Commissioner Swaran Singh has concluded that Islamophobia remains a problem in the Conservative Party, as you might expect, and the party's complaint system needs a major overhaul. Uh, in his conclusion, he doesn't go so far as accusing the party of institutional racism. When the subjects of complaints include Zach Goldsmith and good old Bojo himself... Do you think the party will do anything uh, significant about it? No. No, I don't. Um, I think there's a couple of things at work here. One is that the criticisms are often you know, are of Johnson in his previous life as a Telegraph columnist and the things he said then. And as we all know, the man is in a constant state of reinvention. And he is now, as far as many Conservatives are concerned, completely moved on. Another thing to bear in mind is that the Conservatives don't generally think that they have an Islamophobia problem. I mean, they look at their cabinet, they see Rishi Sunak, they see Kwasi Kwarteng, they see Alok Sharma, they see, you know, four non-white people and Priti Patel, not four non-white people in the cabinet, and they think there's no real problem. The party does not only not really believe in structural racism, but it doesn't like to see politics through that lens. And that's why I think you'll see very little meaningful action. Uh, and I mean, obviously, one reason would be that, that obviously the, the press uh, overall, there's a, there's a sort of uh, far more right wing papers than left wing ones. Is that the only reason why this doesn't hurt the Tories like anti-Semitism hurts the Labour Party? Or is this something sort of qualitatively different? Well, Labour anti-Semitism drove a wedge through the Labour Party. I mean, it... it, it was destroyed it basically it it basically helped to remove jeremy corbyn it was a defining issue for the party in the last in the last 2 3 years and there's although there's some criticism and there's some unease about islamophobia in the conservative party it's not an existential threat to the party in the same way yeah poor baroness well I see. um he Quite. was obviously very disappointed by the report ian dunt is editor at large at projects.uk he's been hard at work in the twitter salt mines live tweeting <laughs> The Dom Show. Hello, Ian. Hello, hello. It's good to see you. Actually, see you people. It's actually quite fucking strange, to be honest, but I, I, it'll get more normal, I'm sure, as we go on. <laughs> oh, used to it. I've had to put a laptop in front of his face <laughs> to normalise the experience. Uh, the BBC has been in self-flagellation mode for its handling of Princess Diana's interview with Martin Bashir in 1995. Um, and the Tories are making noises yet again about reforming the corporation, how it is funded, and so on. But do you think enough people care about this scandal, uh, which is as old as Blur versus Oasis, um, to make it a useful stick for the government? Does it does it give them? They're always looking for excuses, but does it actually move the needle with the public? I don't know. I've got no idea what the fucking public think about anything. I don't think anymore. I know. I've just we've just witnessed just this fucking just corpulent fucking bucolic boil of fucking hypocrisy over this story that is just it, it's ex- fucking extraordinary to literally like the tab the tabloids of all people in the fucking world to come out about what the bbc did with princess diana is like it's like a level of hypocrisy that you're like i fucking i thought you might be physically <laughs> capable of it but i wasn't fucking sure until this moment and then the and insofar as there is a public reaction they would themselves be being sickeningly hypocritical. And this is the thing people don't fucking talk about with, with the Diana thing, right? Which is that people put that shit in the paper because the public wanted to read it. And at some point, someone has to be honest. Just go, I mean, it's 25 years later. So now we can start perhaps being honest and saying that you don't keep on following a story for year after year as they pursued her unless people want to read it. And they bought the fucking paper and on the back of them buying the fucking paper, they sold the fucking advertising. And that created a culture which did eventually lead to this woman's death. It's not like she was this naive, perfect, innocent child in that. She partly used the media, but that is what led to her death. So now for everyone to just turn around and go, she was a saint. We did nothing wrong. It's all apparent. It's all the fucking BBC's fault. It's just a level of stupidity and hypocrisy that honestly, genuinely felt like it was searing my brain. And at this point, I feel like I've got a lot of practice of experiencing it. I think they're bad people, Ian. They, they may well be. Dialing in from her Metropolitan Nerve Centre is Naomi Smith, <laughs> Chief Executive of Best for Britain. 
Um, hi, Naomi. How are you? How's Britain? Hi, Dorian. Britain is is fine, and Best of Britain is doing well. Um, Kim Ledbetter has been selected as the candidate for Batley and Spence by-election, contesting the seat of her late sister, Joe Cox. Uh, like Joe, she grew up in Batley, um, but there was some controversy over the party waiving rules about how long someone should be a Labour member before being selected. Um, why? Why is that? Like, why was she not uh, a member? And do you think that that should be an issue? Well, as I understand it, um, and huge congratulations to her on the selection, it was because she had previously been a Labour Party member. Um, and, you know, obviously her and her sister, you know, very involved and um, sympathetic to the Labour cause. But she'd stepped back from it after Joe's murder because she set up a charity, the Joe Cox Foundation. Um, and of course, there are very strict rules around charities being involved in, in, you know, influencing elections and their participation in politics. So she was forced to step back from her membership um, for that and, and has now rejoined. And it, it can't be beyond most people's empathy to understand that politics took her sister away from her. It, it, it was politics that got Joe murdered. Um, and so it, it's surely very natural to have wanted to have stepped away from frontline politics and, you know, being involved in a political party after such a tragedy as that. So, I, look, I just think it's it's a bit of a, a storm in a teacup. She's clearly an incredible candidate for the seat, very well placed to hold the seat for Labour. Um, and I wish her all the very best. And chosen with sort of 80 percent. Exactly. Um, exactly. Support for the members. And rounding out the famous five is tireless commentator Alex Andreu. So tireless that he has to join us from home because he's working all the time. <laughs> Hi, Alex. End also, end also, because I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good. Everyone's happy. Um, this week, Roman Protasevich, a Belarusian blogger who played an important part in protests against Alexander Lukashenko's government last year, was detained after his Ryanair flight was diverted in midair. I've had some bad experiences on Ryanair. Um, but even CEO Michael O'Leary, who will charge you for taking a piss, called it a state-sponsored hijacking. Uh, the EU is banning Belarusian airlines from European airspace and urging other airlines not to fly over Belarus. Um, does it have to do more to deter other governments from doing this now that we've seen that this is a thing that apparently you can do? Yes. Does it want to do more? I don't know. And that depends on a host of other factors. Um, just to, I mean, just to summarize in one sentence how incredible this is, we're talking about a Finnish plane of an Irish airline that took off from Greece, headed to Lithuania, that was basically hijacked by a quasi-enemy air force. And those four countries are not just all EU members, they're all NATO members. And so I think we need to look also to the United States and to the UK to understand how far they're going to take this particular grievance at this point, because always the balance is that um, you might end up pushing someone further into Putin's embrace. And you might cause uh, uh, people in the country to revolt when they're in a situation where they will be violence. And so you, you must only escalate the rhetoric if you're willing to back it up with action. And I think at the moment, the West are figuring out what the right balance is of, between rhetoric and the action that they're willing to back it up with. Mm. Well, this week on the show, we would, of course, be looking at Doma Palooza, uh, which uh, is possibly still going on <laughs> as you listen to this. It's, it's not. It's he, not. It's has he finished? Has he not, has he not yeah, coming back for, for an encore? <laughs> you know, like Bruce Springsteen doing like Twist and Shout or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, did Dominic Cummings successfully pin the blame for the COVID disaster on Johnson's dithering laziness and blithe willingness to let octogenarian bodies pile up? Did Matt Hancock really deserve to be sacked over and over again in an infinite time loop? And what happens if he stays? And are internet memes the future of select committee hearings? Plus, a progressive alliance against the Conservatives. Could it work? Should it work? What would need to happen to make it so? 
And the extra bit for Patreon people only will be a break from politics where the panel will be revealing the movie that they really, really think you should watch. So it's Patreon Oh God What Now podcast to sign up and get our gala extended edition every week without ads too. Right, I'll do the countdown now. Five, four. I think that the Secretary of State for Health should have been fired for at least 15, 20 things, including lying to everybody in multiple occasions, in meeting after meeting, in the cabinet room and publicly. Oh dear! You have, you know, that Spider-Man meme with Spider-Man, both the Spider-Mans pointing at each other, but it's like that, but with everybody. So you have Hancock pointing at the permanent secretary, and you have the permanent secretary pointing at Hancock, and they're both pointing at the cabinet office, the cabinet office is pointing back at them, and all the different Spider-Mans are all pointing at each other, saying you're responsible. There's a great misunderstanding people have that because it nearly killed him, therefore he must have taken it seriously. But in fact, his argument after that happened was, literally, quote, I should have been the mayor of Jaws and kept the beaches open. Did you hear him say, like, the bodies pile high in their thousands or it's only killing 80-year-olds? The version that the BBC reported was accurate. And you heard that? I heard that in the Prime Minister's study. We've spent four years slagging off Dominic Cummings and how he's gone and ruined it by turning on the government. <laughs> a few hours before we recorded the podcast, Cummings celebrated the uh, first anniversary, plus one day, of his Rose Garden press conference, the one with the eye test, by facing questions from the Health Select Committee and the five-hour... Was it five? How many, how many hours? No, it was more than that, wasn't it? It was more like seven, six and a half. Seven hours. Yeah, seven hours. Yeah. Epic. It's like fucking Lord of the Rings. <laughs> uh, Megamind versus the Mayor from Jaws did not disappoint. <laughs> Ian, because we're in the studio, I'm able to point at you like Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man. <laughs> How credible did you find Cummings' testimony overall? Did he sort of confirm or contradict what we already knew from reporting, such as uh, failures of state? Yeah, exactly. Failures of state was what kept on ringing through my mind. And that interview that you had with them, right? Because they, do you remember there was a certain point where they went, anything up to March 14th? you can kind of justify. And after March 14th, you can't. And the thing is, his timetable operated pretty much to exactly the same point. He had a, a meeting that happened on the 13th where he says, um, the Deputy Cabinet Secretary walked into a room in Downing Street and just said, we're fucked, we're going to kill thousands of people. But basically, that's the period. This is the sort of period from sort of 11th to the 14th. So overall, you look at the story that he was telling and it does correspond to the investigative journalism that we've seen, to the uh, reports put out by public health bodies, to the statements by, from public health experts. It corresponds to what we know about um, the care homes, what we know about the impact of those two-week or longer delays on lockdowns. It corresponds. I think the, the bit where it gets more difficult is the minutiae, right? Because the minutiae is suddenly where that come of Cummings galaxy spaff brain comes into fucking view, right? Like all of a sudden, what's incredible is everyone is a hero or a villain. Like no one is grey in his world, apart from him. He is super nuanced. Like he <laughs> fucking he fails in some things, he succeeds in others, he learns, he changes, he's everyone else is either like the worst cunt you have ever fucking met, or they are the, he literally called several people the most ethical person I have ever known. Blah blah blah. Um the person who hates the most is Matt Hancock. There was a point, honestly, when they brought up Barnard Castle, Steve Pierce, the wonderful Steve Pierce online, when he's going to say that Matt Hancock did that. <laughs> and obviously that was true, because fucking Hancock just got blamed for all things, all <laughs> failures is Matt Hancock's fault. Whereas others, you might notice, like Rishi Sunak, was defended over and over again. And that's the sort of stuff that makes you think, oh, what the fuck's going on here? You've clearly got an agenda that you're working to. Many viewers... Um, thought that, that, that Cummings was positioning himself as the guy who was right but wasn't listened to, um, like the, the scientist at the beginning of a, a Roland Emmerich movie. But what surprised me was he did actually apologise for his, his failings. He said, I apologise for not having acted earlier. If I had acted earlier, lots of people may still be alive. And he includes himself and the people who fell disastrously short, failed people. Now, that's something that, that it doesn't happen often where people not only say, I made a mistake, but it's like, I made a mistake that killed people. Um, am I giving him too much credit for that admission? It was fucking weird, wasn't it? Because he was, he was quite contrite. It was a really different, you know, to compare him to what he was a year ago when he sat in the garden, you know, treating every criticism as a conspiracy and hmm. inventing these extraordinary stories in order to justify himself. It's a very different guy that you saw. And I, I presume that's just because he's smart enough to know how that 
come across. It comes across much better. And by the way, it's a pretty believable story that he told for what it's worth. You know, when people were like, well, why didn't you challenge harder in March, in late February? He was like, well, it's actually pretty fucking difficult when there's just like a lot of scientists on stage saying this is going, this will not work this way. You know, when basically the whole sort of medical establishment, certainly people in their bubble were all against it. And I kind of got that. I was just thinking like, well, I think I would probably think, well, surely they understand this better than I do. I didn't blame. To be honest, I did find all of that quite believable. But I don't think that necessarily means it's because he suddenly turned over a new leaf. I think it's just because that's how he thought he would be most convincing because ultimately again when you drill down to some of the individual things he was saying they did feel quite self-serving they did feel as if they were you know is it credible for instance that he, he says sunak at no point tried to stop um the second lockdown now we have it really well documented again by the failures of state mm-hmm. guys over and over that he did do that it's been documented by several different journalists really credible sources frankly more credible than dominic cummings so on that basis you're like so what's your game? Is it literally just as simple as like you just want to like fuck Hancock and then think that you can get in with Sunak later on? Is that because it feels that obvious? Because he but can it really be? Because he ignores Hancock's. Because there is a, a mixed. They better have mixed records. He yeah. ignores Hancock's successes and also he ignores Sunak's failures. It's that binary you're talking about. It's, it's yeah, like, whichever way you look at it, Hancock is not solely responsible for everything that happened. He is inept. Like, you know, like you cannot describe he's like a human cardboard in a storm. OK, but that still puts him head and shoulders above most of the people in fucking cabinet. He's still got lots of the calls right on lockdown. He hasn't you know, he would not even be in my top 10 people in the cabinet that I wanted to remove from there. I mean, I want to remove the whole fucking cabinet, but, but you know, he's not you wouldn't single him out. So it's it felt kind of just bizarre after a while especially when you think about just how gushing he was about several other figures that we really do have it on very good evidence did not have that effect of a time um alex i wanted to ask you about uh, hancock um coming says he should have been sacked on 15 to 20 occasions which is kind of like a hardcore version of fire and rehire <laughs> um like i do I, I mean there was a feeling i suppose that hancock's performance improved over time but there's strong evidence here that he did lie on several occasions in the early phase we've seen this in reporting as well um you know saying that nobody was to everybody got the care they needed we know that that mm. wasn't yeah, yeah, true yeah. and there were other other kind of lies that, that that cummings mentioned were you sort of convinced by that or were you surprised by the sort of ferocity uh, of the attack i was less surprised than ian i think because what uh, the the reason um, coming singled out Hancock um, seemed to me quite credible. So what I picked up was that Hancock was the one person in government who was basically work instead of working towards the the medium and long term goals that they had as a group to do with this pandemic. What uh, Cummings described was a person who was working on the day-to-day goals of what he can claim as a success at his next press conference. And that can be quite destructive when you're trying to work as a team towards slightly more long-term goals. So, for instance, the the example about the 100,000 tests, which we all knew at the time was bullshit. We all knew at the time the tests had been bottlenecked uh, in order to sort of reach a superficial high. We all knew that they were counting tests that were sent out but were n- not sent back. We knew that they were counting multiple tests for the same person where those tests has been had been unsuccessful. And so we knew that figure was bogus. But what Cummings said made perfect sense to me, that in order for, for Hancock to be able to stand up at that press conference and say, I got to my target, he was disrupting the work that was going on behind the scenes to try and build a slightly more sustainable um, track and trace system by going, no, you down tools on the main objective and do this thing that I want you to do now because I need another 10,000 tests from you. And and I think that's that's why it felt to me he was particularly singled out for for criticism because I think out of out of all those people, with the exception of Johnson, who is, you know, his own animal and was at the top of the table in any case, I think Hancock was the person in the team that was not working as a team player. 
Roz, Cummings paints this damning picture of Boris Johnson. I mean, could could hardly be more damning. If he thinks that Johnson is a walking indictment of the political system and, and one half of the appalling choice presented to the electorate in December 2019, how did he blunder into um, becoming his top advisor? <laughs> yeah, that, that is that is. It's a very question. unfortunate <laughs> that is a if question. there's a guy that you think doesn't deserve to be prime minister and then mm. you're an advisor and you can't get out of it and you keep trying to make excuse, but mm. then you get like... I think, to be honest, he felt a sense of responsibility because fundamentally it's because of... Dominic Cummings, that Boris Johnson is in Downing Street. If it hadn't been for the success of Vote Leave, if it hadn't been for Johnson joining the campaign, then we wouldn't have had Theresa May and we wouldn't have had Theresa May being ousted because Cummings and his ilk pushed for the hardest form of Brexit. So there is a direct link there. Therefore, Cummings knows in his heart of hearts that he is responsible for Boris Johnson being in Downing Street. So what is a responsible thing to do when you've created this fuck-up? Well, I mean, you can see it as, well, he, the guy's invited me to join him. I'm a lot cleverer than he is. Maybe I can actually make his premiership slightly less of a car crash than it would otherwise be. And I think that Cummings' ego is sufficiently large that he did think that way. And he thought, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, he wants me there. He relies on me. Uh, you know, I can stop the worst excesses, the worst flaws of Johnson's character. And I can, you know, fulfill what I want to do. And all these tech, you know, these mm-hmm. these dreams about the um, overhauling the civil service and bringing in big new scientific agencies. I can do that at the same time. So I think that's the rationale. Uh, he said, incidentally, he said so explicitly, you may have missed this because I think you may have been travelling towards the studio. I didn't, get right to side, the of, I didn't get to disc six of the box yeah, set. <laughs> it, it was right at the end of his session. But what he said, and I'm quoting him fairly verbatim here, is that the, the heart of the problem of why he didn't leave earlier was that I came to the view that uh, Boris Johnson was not fit to do the job. And I was trying to build a structure around him that would prevent him from making bad decisions and basically railroad him into what I saw as the right decisions. Now, whether that's right or wrong, whether that's democratic or not, um, that is explicitly what he said do. That is definitely, that's the ex-Trumper defense isn't it we saw it yeah, again yeah, yeah. and again from people like john Bolton. for sure and yeah. it's a very charitable it's a very charitable interpretation of things that he 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 makes on his he himself mm, i think mm. the real truth is that boris johnson and dominic cummings are both blaggers of very different style but mm-hmm. both blaggers mm. they both have built a career uh, by believing very firmly that they are the smartest person in the room and they can run rings around everyone else. And when they share a room, it is an inevitability that the time will come when they actually realize that they're both trying to play each other. Because another thing that really threw me about Johnson was when when Cummings says that actually it was good that he didn't attend the Cobra meetings because he would have made them worse. Oh, well, yeah, they were that, trying the to keep officials were saying. That. Yeah. Yeah, he wasn't alone. He was apparently, they seemed relieved <laughs> that he, he was, wasn't there. That he was, whatever he was doing, which is why the worrying about Carrie's dog, dog. or <laughs> trying to trying to write his his no doubt groundbreaking scholarship <laughs> on, on the bard <laughs> in which in which we will you we will learn entirely new things about you just could not fucking make it up but i like the idea that they're just like yeah mate just just go off <laughs> yeah. go off and yeah. go off and write about a midsummer night's dream or something we've got this <laughs> Julius Caesar, surely. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Henry I, V. I, I, he very wanks on about Henry V, doesn't he? Oh, I've ordered this a bit too generous. I mean, basically, it, it must be, you know, the, the reason he's not there now in Downing Street is because they had a fucking briefing war because he really hates Boris Johnson's girlfriend and she really hates him. Like, that would, you drill down to this shit. Like, there's no great, you know, 
points of principle or fundamental. It was just like, they, they, you know, he's a vitriolic, spiteful, unpleasant, super arrogant, egomaniacal twat. And therefore, we had this big fight and he fucking leaves. Then when he leaves, he tells this story. And the thing is, the story, I don't think, is definitely not entirely false. I don't even think it's mostly false. Like most of the reports you heard from inside, I kind of believe his timetable. About mid-March, he decided, you know what, that's not going to fucking work, which is not shocking. That's when lots of people were coming to the realisation needed to lock down. And then he pushed for it. That's what you heard from behind the scenes, that he would push for it. You also did hear, by the way, that Matt Hancock did the same thing. And you certainly heard the, that um, Michael Gove used to do the same thing. They were the names that used to get mentioned yeah. to you. Is, you know, these guys kind of get it a bit more than the others. And so he puts this story together. And in doing so, he really just wants to fuck the guys that paid him insufficient respect before. And that's really the ultimate motivating factor. You can still get truth out of it. You know, you can extract it from the guts of this terrible machine. But I think ultimately when we... I, I don't want to be too generous to him because I just think as it, he's kind of appealing to it right now. I honestly think today he was going out of his fucking way not to offend Remainers. The, the madness of the words that are coming out of my mouth. If you think about all the times we've sat over the last yeah, yeah. four years and yeah. just got, you know, he used to fucking love slagging us. Every time someone doorstepped him, he'd be like, get the fuck out of North London. You don't understand the real people from his house in fucking North London. Like... And now he's like, oh, but, you know, not to talk about the rights or wrongs of Brexit. And not to, you know, and he, he, literally, he said that several times. Then he said, culture was, by the way, culture war, nothing to do with me, mate. He literally said nothing to do with me. That's like, he's just like, what the fuck are you talking about, dog? You did the blogs. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know. The blogs. We know when it was you sending stuff to journalists because it was always written like you thought you were in some Andran performance of Sparta. Like you just, it's, you're a fucking idiot. So honestly, for that, I just think, you know, he is trying to appeal to people like us right now. And I think we should take the stuff that we can use. But let's not get seduced into this idea that ultimately he was always a pretty good guy behind the stage. So I don't oh, think but, he So he, but do we have to drop about... him from the podcast next week? Because he was going to be our, he was be <laughs> our it... special guest. <laughs> <laughs> it was going to be eight hours long. <laughs> it's not about that. It's about matching the account with what we have as external evidence. Yeah. And there is a lot of external yeah. evidence. I wrote a piece like 10 months ago, that came to the exact same timeline and the exact same conclusions about the panic that was going on during that march in Downing Street, simply from reading the SAGE meetings and watching all the press conferences. Because you could see, you could see, you know, the, in the Parthenon marbles at the British Museum, there's this amazing thing that even though most of their heads are missing, you can see in the tension of their body that the ones towards the centre know that Athena is being born, while the ones towards the edges are still all relaxed because they don't know the news of the the new divine birth. This is a very great analogy. But it was precise. But when you watch all the daily news conferences, one after the other, mm. you can absolutely see when witty and Valence's body language changes mm -hmm. from quite relaxed, quite jo jokey to quite ashen and yeah. quite serious. Yeah. And you can see that the guy in the middle Boris Johnson, hasn't got the fucking news yet. Mm -hmm. And you can see that as they progress, their body language gets even more glum until one day he gets it in the middle. You know, this is perfectly plain for anyone to see. So you don't have to take Dominic Cummings' word for it. But, you know, when he turns around and says that, you know, Boris Johnson said to him, laughed and said to him, there's nothing wrong with chaos. I like chaos because if there's chaos, everyone turns to me because I'm the guy in charge. That to me has the ring of truth. And that is more revealing and more damning than any other bitty evidence about the sort of Borgia's wars that were going on behind the scenes. That's ultimately what brings, what brought... Cummings and Johnson together, a love of chaos. You know, Cummings, Cummings sees, saw Brexit as a disruptive thing that would shake everything up and we could all make it new and creative destruction. And Johnson you know, so, sees chaos in the same way as an opportunity. And that is what held them together for so long. Mm -hmm. Well, Ros, one, obviously the quote that, that, you know, I'd imagine would be on front pages tomorrow was the Deputy Cabinet Secretary apparently saying uh, early on, I think we're absolutely fucked. This country is heading for disaster. We're going to kill thousands of people. Um, 
Now, obviously, it's it's sort of good that this has come out now. But did it leave you thinking that there was an upside to the fact that the public didn't know how chaotic things were behind the scenes? Because there's certain things that were revealed that in that very delicate period where people needed some degree of trust in the government in in order to not just, you know, be punching each other in the aisles of Sainsbury's. Um, and, and were you actually thinking, my God, if all of this had just come out in that really intense march, you know, that the, the, actually the consequences could have been quite grim. Yes and no. Um, yes, in the obviously we had panic buying anyway and people were scared and, you know, school, like people, parents were taking their kids out of my primary school even before the schools closed. You know, clearly there was public alarm. But on the other hand... I don't think until it came to the crunch, Johnson ever succeeded in conveying the magnitude of what the worst case scenario, the scenario that was going to happen was. And that made it very difficult because, you know, we were in a position where, as coming set out today, herd immunity was the policy until about 15th of March. And no one is any, in any doubt about that. You know, it's clear now that, that that was what it was because they couldn't, they thought if we stamp on it now, it will just come back in the winter, which will be worse. And we haven't got a vaccine yet and we won't have a vaccine for a long time. And so that was the policy. Then it wasn't the policy, but that was never made explicit. It was never made explicit to the population that that, <coughs> that uh, decision, <coughs> that <coughs> there was a change of mind. They just rode back on it in a pathetic way. And so you had people very confused thinking, oh, every, they, they, we should catch it. Oh, now we've got a lockdown. And that was that was the way that it, it, I think it played with people's minds in a very damaging yes. way, and the government was not was not honest with us. And all the time, Johnson was saying, "Oh, oh, oh we don't need to worry." And then suddenly, there was this serious, terrifying Johnson. And I think that there wasn't a, the kind of gradual ramping up which there should have been of people having to realise how serious this was, and that has had long term consequences as well because it has. You know, emboldened people who said that we never needed a lockdown in the first place, mm. and it's yeah. it, that 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 turned out. I mean, I found it. I don't deny that I found it extremely difficult to get my head around the idea of a lockdown. I was wrong about that. I just couldn't conceive how the state could, could support people through a lockdown. How that was even possible, I couldn't imagine something like furlough. That was beyond <laughs> my could imagination. They. <laughs> no, <laughs> it was beyond my imagination. It really wasn't. It was beyond Sage's imagination at first, because we know from the plans that they had that they totally ruled out any travel bans or lockdowns. Even school closures were mm, maybe. You know, it, it it just was not on the radar, and I took a long time from to get my head around it and. It is not surprising to me that people in government did as well, but we should have had it. There should have been a gradual, a gradual leveling with the public rather mm. than this sudden U-turn. But it seems like quite a sudden U-turn, even for the people in the room. And, and one error that you sort of mentioned there was <clears throat> made by scientists as well as politicians was this assumption, this behavioural psychology assumption that the public just wouldn't stand for a lockdown. Mm. You know, mm. and that that ran in tandem with the assumption that there was actually no point trying to suppress it because there'd only be a spike later. So you might as well just kind of you know do mm. have chicken pox parties or um, you know however they thought that that was going to work. So what emerged for me was obviously that Johnson should carry the can and Matt Hancock should be fired over and over again. But um, from the cannon, much <laughs> better these much bigger <laughs> systemic failures. You know, to do with sort of establishment thinking, to do with groupthink. I do think Cummings was was, was right on that. Yeah. Um, you know, so so do you think that people, because obviously the message that people take away, particularly people that don't like this government, is the kind of personality stuff and the kind of like the bitchy drama. But this seems to me to, to suggest that hopefully going on behind the scenes now in Whitehall, in the NHS, you know, in SAGE, is some serious kind of rethinking in preparation for the next time. Yeah, I think I think there is and not just for pandemics but for other threats as well as Cummings hinted at today when he talked about all kinds of you know anthrax biological chemical you know biological attacks and so on. And I think there has been a realization and I heard Kate Bingham the head of the vaccine task force to uh, say this last night that you need more scientists in government. You need a wider, a wider selection of people. You don't just want to have arts graduates writing policy papers about stuff they don't understand, which is often the case. You really need more people from a wider variety of backgrounds in government to stop this kind of groupthink, 
And that is true. And he is he is right about that. I don't like the approach he took, you know, clearly the way he drove out very good civil servants when he was in Downing Street it was was reprehensible. But he has, you know, like any evil genius, he has <laughs> moments of clarity that we shouldn't necessarily ignore. Well, finally, <laughs> Ian, cynical Twitter brain uh, will assess the impact of Cummings' testimony in terms of polls and headlines. But even if it doesn't turn the nation against um, a fatally incompetent government, do you think that this has a has a deeper value to the, you know, to the historical record or to the people whose job it is to, to you know, to sort of to develop best practice that, that, that this that this will matter even if, you know, the Tories gain a point in the next poll? Yeah, yeah. I couldn't give a f- if I hear another person on Twitter just pop up this this despairing bullshit. You get all the time just like won't make any difference, won't make any difference. We're all still going to yeah. die. We're all, the, the polls are fucking now. They're going to be twenty points. Just like fine, I get it. I get the thing with the polls. That is a fucking thing, and that does not please me. But you can just put that in its box for now <laughs> because this shit matters in its own terms. It doesn't just matter in so far as you know that has a political impact. When he talks about those deaths, when he talks about the fucking care home deaths. <laughs> That's 36,000 people that died that way. And when he talks about the delays over the second, over the winter lockdown, that's over 20,000 people that died. And there is a fucking moral imperative and an intellectual imperative to try and understand it. And it doesn't mean that you take him at face value. It means that you, de- you do take it as the statements of someone that was inside the machine that you put together with the rest of the evidence to try and work out what went wrong. And that is not just about punishing the people that fucked up. Although, by the way, it should be about punishing the people that fucked up. But it is also about the process of ha- recognizing how you do not do it again. So fuck like it's just put the I just think for this you just put the party politics to one side. Mm. Fuck all of that. This is about just on the basic level paying some respect to the tens of thousands of people who lost their lives because of these people's goddamn fucking in- inadequacy. And 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 that's why I think the stuff that was said about the second lockdown is what needs to um, take up much more space in column inches and history books in, in years to come. Because actually, to make horrific mistakes in March, because you do, your eye's not on the ball, because all of this stuff that we've heard over and over again, like a chewing gum, it was unprecedented, we were doing the best we can, and there were difficult decisions, we were following the science... To make all those mistakes in the first two weeks in March may be forgivable. To make the exact same mistakes in the second two weeks of September, when it wasn't a fucking difficult decision, it was a really easy decision at the end of September, the science was telling you the same thing as everything else was telling you, and you had the experience of the first wave. To make the same fucking mistakes in those last two weeks in September is utterly Utterly unforgivable. Now, listeners who want to hear about a progressive alliance, pull up a chair. Your moment has come. (laughs) New polling from Best for Britain. (laughs) (laughs) Don't feel so excited. Reveals that only 39% of people think their vote made a difference in the last set of elections. On top of this, Labour's polling is dire at the moment, with YouGov reporting an 18-point lead for the Tories. It's led many on the centre-left to suggest that a progressive alliance of anti-Tory parties could be the silver bullet, but can they really all get along? Um, I'm going to play the role of naysayer, and Naomi Smith is going to be the yaysayer. (laughs) (laughs) So, Naomi, to start with, you worked hard during the 2019 election to encourage tactical voting, uh, while the Brexit party and the Tories formed a pretty successful unprogressive alliance. How many seats did you conclude would have been taken off the Tories if a, if a proper sort of formal alliance had been in place as opposed to leaving it to the voters? Well, long-term listeners will, um, of course, remember my uh, rant on the show that we recorded immediately after the 2019 general election because I had done the work. At Best of Britain, we had done seat analysis on every seat in the country on Westminster voting intention, and then we'd done pacts showing what would happen if the Brexit party stood down for the Conservatives and the progressive parties all fought each other, what would happen if there was a like-for-like 
progressive alliance against that regressive alliance and what would happen if Labour didn't participate in that progressive alliance. And the reason we did that analysis was to put lots and lots of pressure on the political parties to avoid a general election and if they weren't going to avoid a general election, to work together because the numbers were so stark. So to answer your question uh, in actual numbers terms, our analysis showed that if there had been a progressive alliance, it would have had 327 MPs to the Conservatives, 305. So that 320 plus one figure that, that, that parties are always trying to get over the threshold of in order to form government was clearly only going to be able to be achieved through an equal uh, progressive pact on, on our side. Well, back then, uh, we called it the Remain Alliance. Do you think that it's harder to achieve now without that one issue which brings together Labour, Greens, Lib Dems, the SNP? Um, it, it, it's never been easy. Uh, so I don't think it's harder now. It's always hard. And uh, at the last election, it was only plied Liberal Democrats and uh, Greens that managed to get a bit of an alliance going in 60 seats um, and, and was relatively successful uh, in achieving some wins for, for about five of those. The, the, the common enemy has surely got to be this nativist, protectionist, uh, conservative government that is 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 not serving the country well. The majority of people didn't vote for those parties at the last election. They didn't at the recent set of elections. But because of our first-past-the-post system and the fracturing of the votes across the progressive parties, it leads to these bastardized, out, bastardized outcomes where you get a majority, a very large majority of the seats on a minority of the votes. And so I think the, the two things that those parties have got that ought to be uniting them is, A, that loathing of the government that we've got at the moment, and B, the voting system that means that they are much more likely to be uh, in opposition almost all of the time rather than in power almost all of the time, albeit potentially within a coalition. Well, you say that they, they all loathe the Tories, but the sort of obvious obstacles to me seems to be that the Lib Dems and Greens both take a chunk of votes from the Tories and they serve that sort of protest party role, you know, in, in, in specific constituencies. So when you, if you're sort of taking away that choice, one, is that just undemocratic? And two, does that just mean that there's going to be a bunch of people that would, would normally have voted for the Lib Dems um, and Greens, but just recoil from the idea of an alliance with Labour. So actually, you're going to that a whole chunk of those voters are just going to go back to the Tories. Well, let's just break that down. So the first statement is clearly bullshit. If we're talking about what is democratic, we cannot talk about it being more democratic. Uh, to, to, to maintain the status quo of a first-past-the-post voting system. So a progressive alliance doesn't have to be a thing in perpetuity. It's a thing for a, for a one-off election to hold noses, defeat the Conservatives, and get a change to the voting system so that we can have equal votes. We don't have democratic equality in this country. We are one of the only developed you know, democracies in the world that still uses this antiquated system. Uh, you'll often see people talking about, you know, it's only places like Belarus that, that still use it apart from us. That's not entirely true. There are uh, a few other places that do too. So it, it, it cannot be any less democratic than the system that we've got at the moment, which is just a, a nonsense and doesn't work and doesn't serve people. Um, and, and, you know, and, and that's true under any party. You know, 2005, Labour got, you know, a very small vote share compared to the, the majority of seats it was able to get under that system. So, no. The Greens have been taking votes off the Conservatives, yes. Um, and there are some places where the Lib Dems will, will effectively squeeze Tory votes too. But, much, much more so is the interchangeability between those votes. So when we've polled this in the past, and I'll be doing it again later this year, when we when we ask that question of, and if your favoured party isn't standing, where would your votes go? You are seeing, you know, the vast majority of them switching to other progressive parties in, in upwards of 75%. But as we know, like the Labour Party doesn't really like an alliance with the Labour Party. Um, <laughs> and and there's, there's a huge amount of uh, internal disagreement. And one thing that uh, I must admit I, uh, I stole from a rival podcast was the observation that, that there's, there's quite a sort of nimby-ish dimension to the, to the support of Greens and Lib Dems in local areas where they're opposing sort of house building projects or HS2. Um, and that that's, that's a lot of the reason why a lot of people do vote for them. 
how are their policies compatible with Labour's? But we can look at, say, climate. OK, great. You can all agree on that. But aren't there quite a few areas where they just simply want different things? Yeah, and that's why we need to have a more plural system so that parties and the parties that exist within parties can all fragment and, and you know, not have to hold together these broad churches that are difficult to do, as you mentioned, within themselves, let alone between themselves. I would challenge the the assumption that, um, you know, Lib Dems, are, are, and I'm not a Lib Dem member anymore, so I would like to stress that, uh, you know, are against HS2 and house building because that, that just isn't true. In fact, I think at the last election, uh, the Lib Dem manifesto was committed to, I think, something like 300,000 new homes a year in excess of, of things that other parties were calling for. And corporately, their position is to be in favour of HS2. If you're talking about the Cheshire and Amersham by-election, um, yes, unfortunately, the Lib Dem candidate there is standing on an anti-HS2 and you know conservative approach to house building there. I think that is often the case in by-elections. It's disappointing, I hasten to add. I, I don't think that that's right for them to be doing that. And it's not true that no Labour candidate anywhere is, isn't also similarly NIMBY uh, on, on certain things. So, it, look, we're not saying that um, they have to agree on everything. Ian published a piece from me on this in 2019 after the Brecon by-election where there was a, a, an alliance in place that these sorts of arrangements can be on a sliding scale from that full-scale electoral pact where you just don't stand your party and everyone else gets behind and, and jointly endorses the, the one that's most likely to defeat the Conservatives, but right through to you know non-aggression pacts, joint policy positions on certain things. There are a range of things that can be done. And when we think about 97 and the Lib Lab pacts, and that was, you know, that was successfully negotiated. What we need to do is just get these parties talking to each other because, frankly, there is no other way. I don't want to have to do tactical voting ever again. And I don't want the parties to have to do electoral pacts more than once. What we have to do is bear in mind the, the, the truly good outcome for the UK would be a change to the voting system. How do we get that? We need a change of government. How do we get that? Well, we're only going to get it um, if, if they work together because the maths just does not stack up. This is not 1997. We're facing boundary changes that will make it even harder for the opposition parties to, to get a majority. And of course, an, a potentially independent Scotland where, you know, England, Wales and Northern Ireland making it much, much, much tougher, therefore, for, for Labour to get an overall majority. So it's, it's just simply a, a matter of fact so, and maths. So PR is the prize here, because at the moment you've got the Greens have a lot of momentum, you know, in some areas replacing Lib Dems as a third party, um, you know, scoring some sort of really excellent results in, in local elections. Yeah. Um, obviously, they're unlikely to win. Unlike the Lib Dems, they're they're rarely the second place, you know, or if, if ever the second place, you're outside Brighton, you know. So they're not going to win any seats out of a Progressive Alliance. So I was going to ask you, what's in it for them? Is your answer in that election nothing, but next time everything because it's PR? Like you you ha you can only have this with with the promise of PR. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I you know, the, the Greens are incredibly honourable in this, and particularly the the Green leadership um, and Sean Berry, Jonathan Bartley, Caroline Lucas are so committed to improving our democracy that they have been absolutely fantastic at taking some massive hits. You know, when you particularly think about uh, 2017 and the hit they took for backing the Progressive Alliance, because when you don't stand, it means you don't get money. Mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. short money, which is, is what opposition parties get from um, the public purse, is based on your vote share. So if you're not getting a vote share because you're not standing somewhere, you're getting less money. But, that, you know, they're incredibly honourable in saying we will take one for the team in order in order to get a better outcome. Now, that's not to say that they're naive about it and they're growing strength. And you're right to mention the very good showing they've had um, in, in the elections just gone should actually give them more bargaining power within that alliance as it's being forged and to say, actually, we're, we could be kingmaker in this seat. Whether we stand or not, could deny you Labour or Lib Dems or Plaid from winning that seat. So what are we getting in return? How many seats could you feasibly back us in? Now, um, the tricky thing comes into the fact that, that where Greens are in a second place or, you know, are, are growing in momentum, often those are in, in Labour, uh, Labour Green um, seats. I, I won't use the word marginal because the gaps are still quite big. Um, so that does make it more challenging. But the, the, the leadership that they show compared to the leadership of, of the Lib Dems and Labour is really quite staggering on this. Um, and I should also say that Plaid have been very good on it too. Mm. Yeah, sorry, I should have mentioned Plaid in the, in, in, earlier on. Um, 
So I guess finally, what noises are Labour making about a progressive alliance mm-hmm. and PR? Obviously, Clive Lewis is like the the sort of flag bearer for this. But mm. is if you've got a sense of much appetite in the leadership or even just elsewhere on the backbenches? Um, definitely on the backbenches. Really interestingly, though, much more happening within the grassroots and the CLPs, um, where hundreds of motions are being passed in favour of PR. Now, that is not a progressive alliance, but it is a signal that they want to take it in steps and say, we get the party wholly committed to proportional representation, because we know that the Greens and the Lib Dems implied aren't going to trust us on an, an alliance if we haven't committed to, you know, implementing PR afterwards. Mm. So I think that is a very good sort of bellwether uh, of where the direction of the party is going. And, and more and more of the, the MPs are beginning to understand it. Now, look, it's not going to be a thing that is led by the PLP. It is something that is going to have to come from the leader's office. Um, and I think that, you know, they, they, they will be beginning to look at um, the shape of polling and, and the outcomes of, of by-elections and having to do some real soul searching over it. Uh, aligned to that, you've also got the unions, the labour affiliated unions doing a big push on proportional representation. ASLEF was the fourth one last week to commit itself to it. And then the commentariat around uh, Labour, Paul Mason, Paulie Toynbee, others, all beginning to say an alliance is the way through this. They've got precedent. They've done it in 97. It can be done again. Um, I don't think it's going to happen overnight. A huge amount of trust building needs to happen between the parties. But I think we are heading very tentatively in the right direction. So I think there's a couple of problems with this idea. I love I love the idea. It's great. I want PR. I want all these things. But the fundamental problem is I think the Labour Party is institutionally incapable of doing this. And you saw this even in Tony Blair's recent article for the New Statesman, where he was talking of, you know, he was chatting about maybe there could be a progressive alliance with the with the Lib Dems. He didn't even mention the Greens. And Tony Blair is just about the most open minded, you know, progressive person you have in the Labour Party in terms of ensuring it gets back into power. This is partly born out of my cynicism about the ability of the Labour Party to come back. And I know that's not what a lot of people want to hear. I think it's unfit for purpose at the moment. I don't think it's got much longer to survive. I also think that it's yet another, come on, guys, if we just vote tactically one more time, one more push, we can do it. People don't enjoy voting tactically. They want to vote for something. They want to, if when there's a progressive alliance, they want to know what that really stands for, what its main objective is, what its values will be, who is going to lead it, not just that it is not the Tories, because the fact that it is not the Tories is only going to motivate a minority of the population at any one time. And it's a, it's a great idea. I love it. I not I don't think I think British politics is due an even more fundamental shake up than we have already seen and I don't think this idea can survive that. I'm sort of I find myself sort of in in the middle really because I I, I mean Nemi when Nemi was talking about the the article um she wrote sort of years back and whenever I whenever I have to write about electoral alliances I always just call up Nemi and go Nemi tell me how this shit works please. <laughs> um, there's always this thing of like at the bottom level of that there is just you know subtle non-aggression packs you know you don't have to stand down a candidate you can just say well we're not going to pump a lot of money into a seat where we're just going to take away a Lib Dem gain you know anything to get us away from that circular firing squad last time of Labour flooding you know candidates into Westminster to stop Chukaramuna winning it where you and then giving it to the fucking Tories. You know, so what are that? So on the on the lower spectrum of things, it it, feel, it, it doesn't feel like beyond the bounds of possibilities just to, to hold back the cash, to be tactical in the approach, to have just a bit more cooperation between those parties, even if they're not going to sort of properly get married. And I don't I don't disagree with Rose that it's an incredibly big challenge to get Labour into that place. Um, and there are schools of thought, particularly within the Green Party, that we need a scorched earth approach with Labour. You know, let them have the worst defeat of all time, because only then will they truly realise the, you know, the, the commitment they need to make to both in alliance working and PR. But I just don't see that we can not try. Didn't we, just, didn't we sort of have got. Didn't we have that? <laughs> How much rats can he get? How much? How much? Like what? Do you want like one MP? It was literally just the last MP left. It's Jeremy Corbyn. (laughs) (laughs) Fun twist. Now it's time to answer a question from our galaxy of listeners in But Your Emails. This week it's longtime listener Reed Duthie. 
With the beyond confusing last minute messages on the Indian variant from the government, have we lost control of this new variant? Is this local lockdown by stealth? Where is the opposition calling this out? And is June 21st looking very unlikely now? Well, yeah, we've lost control. We, we've lost control of the variant. Okay, so I mean, you know, if you look at obviously, look, um, friend of the show, Christina Pagel. If you follow her Twitter account, you'll get a pretty good indication of, of where we are with it. By the way, it, to have a moment, not just her, many of her female colleagues have for weeks been warning about this mm. and have been written off as fear mongering and um, hysterical online people. When in fact, they have been proved right over and over again by the spread of this thing. It didn't have to get in. Uh, there were several opportunities for it not to get in, not least on the 9th of um, April when they added Bangladesh and Pakistan to the list. Certainly by the 19th when they added India to the list, but decided they'd get everyone another five days to come into the country. But by this stage, it's very common. There's parts where it's over 50 percent. So like you, we have lost we have lost it. The main thing that you're told right now is the next two weeks will tell us just how much trouble we're in because if it is sort of up to 50% more transmissible that really is a problem and it really is hard to imagine where you go from something like that without potentially needing you know another lockdown or, or some more severe restraints hopefully there's some signs in some places that that's not the case and it's less transmissible than that not that much worse than Kent and if so that might not put everything back to um, the worst case scenario but I mean for, to, to think that we can control I think to think that we can control it at this point people are going on holiday people are socialising inside I mean that's that's over like, the opportunity to do that has been lost um, Roz June 21st yes or no I know you've been enjoying the peace and quiet of lockdown getting a bit of me time um, <laughs> I love it I love it um, uh, June 21st may be sort of partial. Um, I can't see uh, it being the kind of rip off your masks um, <laughs> paradise that was originally being touted. I think there will, may well be a change. I mean, the problem is that local lockdowns don't work. We know that. Only national lockdowns work. Mm. Local lockdowns have, have had extremely, you know, they, they just don't work. And that is the problem that the government will have to grapple with. The, I think there will be, there is a chance that indoor socialising will be banned again at some point. I don't know what, I wouldn't like to put a percentage on what that, what that chance is, but that is the thing that we know that spreads COVID most and that would be the logical thing to do. And in the summer, perhaps it would be less, less difficult for people to deal with going back as it were and it would be obviously a huge blow to Johnson to have to go back on his irreversible roadmap to freedom but nonetheless it might happen. There may well also be some movement because there was an important development today. France has now imposed a 10-day quarantine on Britons coming to France so basically that rules out any holidaying in France for the foreseeable future. Now when Germany did that a couple of days ago nobody was that bothered because it's Germany and nobody really holidays in Germany much. France <laughs> is a different matter because the sort of Mail and Times and Telegraph Beautiful readers... country. I want to insist to our German <laughs> listeners. I love Germany. Wonderful you know, country, rich in, in, in history, I but also it. nature. I love it. I'm married to a half German. But it is... Um, it, 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 you know, France is, is one of the countries that matters to the readership of the Telegraph and the Times and the Mail. Frankly, people getting sick in Bolton and Kirklees doesn't matter too much to these people, but having their summer holiday interfered with does. So that may well be a spur to do, doing something different. But I have to say that once other countries start banning us, that's a very bad sign. I always find that when I'm personally banned from people's houses, um, that they, I've probably done something wrong. <laughs> Remember, you can ask your questions if you back us on Patreon. We're trying to expand the range of topics we address. So you don't need to ask us about when we're going to rejoin the EU or how the Tories can be defeated. Uh, or because they're never off our radar. We're always thinking about them. What we would like from you are the things that we might have missed or issues you would like us to sort of unpack or clarify, maybe like, for example, the way we did you know, the Progressive Alliance earlier. So do get in touch uh, and tell us what you would like us to talk about. And that's the show. Thank you so much to Roz. Thank you. Ian. Thank you. Naomi. Thanks very much. And Alex. <laughs> Thank you. In this week's extra bit for Patreon backers, with cinemas opening in the UK, what's the film that each of us thinks everyone else should watch? Back us for as little as £2 a month to hear the full episode. You'll get a preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. Thanks for backing.
thanking us and hello to Jan Kapinski, Valerie Unsworth, James Dickinson and Rona McPherson. Hello and thanks from me to Christopher Lovell, G. Patterson, Caroline Priday and Jay Anderson. And happy birthday to us and thank you to Elizabeth Gant, Veronica Kinsberg, Morgan Hill and Rosa Brennan. And it's a major birthday salute to uh, Robert Cohen, Heather D. Baker, Ian Smith and Andrew Myers. And finally, for me, many thanks to Piers Wood, Ivor Thomas and Angelo Joseph. We'll see you all next week. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Doreen Linsky with Ian Dunn, Naomi Smith, Alex Andreu and Ross Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archibald and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. In person, art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the extra bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. As cinemas reopen, we're talking about the films we think everyone else should watch. Uh, Ros, what is your what is your top recommendation? I'm super intrigued by this. Actually, is it going to be good? Would it be quite bleak? Yeah, like a finished comedy or something. Almost. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I I, I want to recommend a, a film called The Hunt, which was it is Danish actually. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. good. Mads Mikkelsen. It is Mads Mikkelsen, um, who is who's brilliant in it. It's 2012, so it's not not that long ago, and it's basically he uh, is a guy who lives in a small village in Denmark, and he is falsely accused of paedophilia. And his life is, you know, I won't spoil the ending, but, you know, his life becomes very, very difficult. And in a way, this is, this is, you know, classic stuff. This is the kind of thing that you see in The Crucible and you see it in Othello. And, you know, what happens when people become convinced of their rightness? What are they capable of when they do that? How scary is that? And that's something that's always fascinated me. Um, what happens when a society just moves against an individual and what does that how does that individual react i i love this film because he does such a fantastic job of being not some paragon and uh, but a flawed individual who is nonetheless terribly terribly wronged and the ending is very very clever as well and was this Thomas Vinterberg yeah, who just did right. another round? Yeah, he did. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that because it's out in a couple of weeks in the cinema. And I've been seeing trailers for it. Every time I've gone back to the cinema during, you know, relief from lockdowns and mm. before lockdowns, <laughs> there was another round. It's like, oh, God, please, can I see this movie? <laughs> um, and so I, I can't wait. I can't wait to see it. And that was a trailer for the full Snyder Cut of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now? Every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll be helping the podcast. We promise we'll never call for your sacking in a select committee here. <laughs> Thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>